You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. If you do have your Bible, paper, digital, Spanish, um, there's like an island language one at the top next to the NIV uh, that you should dial into as well. That's really fun. I'm the one in charge is what God says to Moses in Exodus. There's lots of fun um, translations. We'll be in Acts chapter 27, and then 28 minus 1, that's only one chapter away from the very ending of the book, and um, it's just kind of crazy. Um, the ending is a little bit um, anticlimactic. Have you ever you know, seen a movie that you're like, dang, it didn't have much closure to it? And, uh, and I think that's because uh, you find Paul basically on house arrest with one of those tags in his ankle, and he's um, using his time to write. Uh, many of the letters that we would read outside of the book of Acts, that in fact, um, the book of Acts begins, O Theophilus, at the beginning of the book, as not something that's supposed to end at 28, but in fact continue into 2023 and 24 and 25 and beyond, and in fact, the story that we're reading today is a lot like the photo album back there, that there's empty pages uh, for more photos to be added into the end of the book of Acts, because it does continue um, throughout time um, in his church. And so, um, yeah, uh, my, um, my experience... Um, coming up from an unsaved background uh, with church uh, was a rocky one at best when I was growing up. I grew up Catholic, mainly just going to church on Easter and Christmas. Like I said last time, you know, wearing the Superman pajamas and then maybe a little bit of a, um, of a sheep costume on top of that if I was, you know, a sheep in, in the nativity. And so um, my first experience in any kind of a non-Catholic church, Protestant church, was a charismatic. So I went from Catholic church to charismatic church all just in one night. I slept over at a guy named Tom Collier's house. You go to sleep at Tom Collier's house. You got to wake up. You got to go to church. And his church was way different than, than my church, okay? I remember w- rolling into the grassy knoll there. There was like flags of every nation blowing high and strong on every single thing, right? And I'm pulling up. And I'm used to Catholic church where it's like the, the, the last thing that anything is happening is you are not making noise in the Catholic church. There's no noise coming out of your mouth. There was a lot of noise going on in this particular church that I was at. Uh, it was a two-hour long uh, shena- shenanigan uh, thing. And um, and uh, yeah, there was, uh, you know, Catholic churches usually sit, stand, kneel, and just kind of paying attention. It was in my time to sit, stand, and kneel. And there's a lot of rolling, dancing, flags. There's lots of stuff going on. And, uh, and Catholic church usually in Latin, there's lots of other languages that was happening um, in this particular church service. And uh, by the end of it, I was kind of zoned out, and, uh, and I was sitting next to the mom and the dad. And the end of it, um, uh, they had what was uh, an altar call that I didn't understand was. And I got nudged, and they were like, Oliver, you want to go down there? And I was like, me? And they were like, you? And I was like, me? And they were like, you? was like, me? And they were like, you? <laughs> you know? And so I kind of like wandered all the way down, you know, to the thing. And uh, I was in this big line, and uh, it, was like a, it was like a whole parade. I mean, there was people like falling over, and there was flags, and there was dancing, and there was the big guy with the big hair and the big makeup. And I got all up to the top, and uh, he was like pushing on my forehead, and I was like, I'm not going back. <laughs> You know, and so it was very anticlimactic. They, they said amen, and I turned up and walked up in, in my seat and sat down again. I was like, well, you learn something new every day. And so uh, it, it dawned on me this was a very special day. It was a very unique day uh, because afterwards, uh, 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 Tom and his family took me out to Denny's, brought me a, a, a Grand Slam. And I was like not the best, you know, uh, uh, influence on Tom. You know, they were trying to get me to go to church and all these types of things. And, um, and I was like, man, this is really great. Thanks for buying me my Grand Slam waffle, you know, Mrs. Collier. It must be really special. I wonder why you're being so nice. And, and she said to me, and I'll always remember the quote she said. She said, you know, Oliver, we're going to Denny's for the Grand Slam because it's not every day that you get saved. And I was like, wait, what? What happened? What did I get saved from? What's, what's going on? 
So meanwhile, you know, I, I always tell you I'm part of the flirt to convert story. So this is pre-convert, more of the flirt time with Kyra. And uh, imagine, right, so you're the Christian girl and, you know, you're like dating and you're like praying for the guy and, you know, all this stuff and bringing up Jesus, you know, when it's culturally appropriate. And, uh, and you're on the phone and I'm like talking about third, third, eye, third Eye Blind and Boy Meets World and whatever else was going on, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, in the 90s. And then all of a sudden the very end I ran out of stuff saying, and I said, you know, by the way, crazy thing, I went to Danny's Got a Grand Slam. And Tom's family said, I got saved yesterday. And Kyra was like, wait, what? Saved? And I was like, man, that's the second time somebody freaked out about that word. It seems like it's a really big deal. And, uh, and she asked me a very good question. And hopefully, if you were my friend, you'd ask me the same question. And so when I said, hey, I got saved, she asked me the question. She said, do you know what that means? Ah, <laughs> that was the part that I kind of got stuck. And so, um, and so I'd ask you that question. You know, if, if I came to you and I called you up and I went to Denny's and got the Grand Slam and I said, I went to Tom Collier's church, I said, I got saved, would, would you know what it means? Or what would you tell me it means? What does it mean to be saved? What is salvation? And most importantly, more important than that, how does somebody become saved? What does that actually mean? What does it mean to be saved and how, how is somebody saved? And most importantly, the question that I'll put up there on the screen is, as we, as we consider, um, is salvation a prayer or something else? Can we be saved by a prayer? Is salvation a prayer? So the best definition uh, that I could come up with from the week's worth of study here is... Um, is one up on the screen, is that salvation, in my study this week, salvation is a past, uh, present, and a future work that God does in Jesus. God does not do bad work. When God gets something done, it doesn't become undone. When he says it, it happens, and when he starts it, he finishes it. It's a work that Jesus does, and it's not dependent on us. And it's past, and it's present, and it's future, and it brings people out of spiritual death. Yes, hell, death, and the grave, but also licentiousness and self-righteousness and jadedness and bitterness and disrespect and all the things, everything that is encapsulated with sin, death, and the grave is exchanged with Jesus. What I deserved got put on Jesus. What Jesus deserved got put on me. And now I live in all of spiritual life, that I get heaven, yes, and a future with Christ, but all through righteousness and a life with Christ and intimacy with Christ and walk with Christ. That it's all of the spiritual death stuff gets lost, I get saved from, and I get saved for all the spiritual life stuff. The way that Romans 8.30 says it is, those who are called or sanctified is another way that the transition could say. Those who are set apart for that purpose, those who are taken out of the death life and into the life part, well, here's what's true of that. They become justified. That, uh, as Corey Ten Boom says, that all of the people who's in Christ, all of their sins gets put in the bottom of the ocean where there's no more fishing. That Jesus forgives sins and forgets sins in light of his cross, death, and resurrection, and not only that, is it not just a past thing and a present thing, but it's also a future thing that I am going to, uh, I'm going to inherit and partake in the glory of Christ Jesus into the future. And so there I have it on the screen back there is the three-part process. All of this happens one time forever. When someone is put in Christ, they can't lose their salvation because God doesn't do bad work. What he starts, he finishes, and what he does can't be undone. So in Christ Jesus, what we're saying when we say we're saved is we are saved from the penalty of sin, I'm treated like Christ because he was treated like me, I'm saved into uh, being removed from the power of sin, that I am uh, becoming what's true, Jesus is becoming true of me. And, and furthermore, I'm continually being transformed one glory to the next so that at one point in time into the future, I will completely be into the promised land with Jesus, for Jesus, like Jesus forever, and that can't be undone because God does good work. So the answer to the question is, what is salvation? Is salvation a prayer? Well, that's not the best answer to it because we don't have faith in faith, we have faith in Christ. Salvation is not a prayer, salvation is a promise. 
And God does good promises. Like I try to think of an example of my own work. You know, is there anything that I do consistently forever? And when I do it, it can't be undone. And I was like, is there anything I do? And really, no. Other than pick up my iPhone, I've been successful in consecutively picking up my iPhone since 2007. And probably the other thing I thought of is if you put a Krispy Kreme donut in front of me, I probably will successfully every time, as good as promised, eat the Krispy Kreme donut every time. But other than that, I'm not very dependable on my work. Here's who's dependable on his work. Jesus is dependable in the work that he does and the things that he does cannot be undone and can't be, can't be, can't be changed. So that's all super lofty and, and, um, and uh, theological and seminary sounding. I love the Bible because uh, the Bible speaks to children, not professionals. And the Bible is great at telling parables and stories and illustrations and images. And it gives us an illustration, really prevalent one, all throughout the pages of Scripture. And, and one of the most prevalent ways that God shows, not just tells about salvation, but shows and gives an illustrative you know, allegory for, is, is the story of uh, the life on the boat in the middle of waves. Have you heard these stories before? There's lots of stories like this in the Bible, but, but salvation, probably one of the most textbook explanations and ways that they would, the Bible would paint a picture of what salvation is and how it works, is the story of a boat in the middle of turbulent and chaotic uh, waves. You're thinking of things like Moses, you're thinking of things like Noah, you're thinking of things like Jesus in the middle of waves, you're thinking about the, the deep watery darkness that, the, that God spoke into in the beginning of time. And so um, we are not short of that kind of an allegory here at the end of Acts 27 for a very specific purpose. Paul finds himself getting, actually, his journey paid for. He's supposed to go to Rome and, and see, basically, King Jesus being lifted up over King Caesar, and right under their nose and without them knowing it, unbeknowingly, Romans pay for his voyage. So he's on this little boat with these other soldiers, and he gets a word from the Lord that they're in trouble, and they're going to lose men and property if they don't stop their ship in Crete without sailing on from Phoenix, and the people don't listen to him. And they move on, and the storm gets so bad for 14... I mean, these are Navy SEALs, could do just push-ups, 1,000 push-ups under the water. Who knows? I don't know. These crazy Navy SEALs people, and they're freaking out, okay? And, and, and yet, the hand of God is still sovereign, right? Because, because the salvation, like if God says that Paul's going to make it to the ends of the earth, then it's going to happen. If you put a Krispy Kreme donut in front of me, I'm going to eat it. And if you're in Christ, he's going to save you. No matter what circumstance, no matter what wave, no matter what trial, no matter what tribulation, no matter what failure, what misgiving or misdecision or misstep you've made, you have been, are, and will be, if you're in Christ, will be saved because salvation is not a prayer, it's a promise. And so it actually reminds us from the very beginning, I think it's why it closes with this, this little story, because it reminds us of the context of the beginning of the story. Sometimes the sermon is so long, right, and the movie's so long, you forget the point in the beginning of it. And the beginning was always this. Remember this, right? Romans, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 does not propose that the salvation of the nations is up to prayer. It's, it, it, it insists that the salvation of the nations is up to his promise. It says that, but you, look at the third word there, not might, not should, not could, not if you get the act together and do the right ministry plan or whatever, you will this bold promise with people like Barnabas and Saul's and backwards, upside down people like you and me will not might receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will promise, assumed there, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. In other words, that the, the little church arc as it makes its way through trial and famine, and sword, and threat, and riot, all of that stuff was never up to them. It was always up to the perfect work of the God, because salvation of the nations, and you, and me, and the family members that you know and love, is not a prayer. It's a promise. And so this is the, this is the statement, I think, that, that he's trying to make, that Luke is making, as we can conclude kind of Acts 27 about the entire book, is that the salvation of Jesus, the journey from death to life, is not up to probability. 
It's up to a promise. And that every storm, every wave that we are facing, whether it's um, or stress or drama or anxiety at work or whatever it may be, every storm, every storm is, is, not only, is not only being solved, but it's being used in our lives because the boat of Jesus is secure. And he does not make leaky boats because we are justified as the accusations from the enemy and people that we thought were friends and the enemies that we know that we have in, in, in the flesh and the blood and so forth, that, that the impenetrable boat of Jesus is not letting that stuff in because we're justified. And that internally, the sanctification process is not up to us. The Holy Spirit is steering the ship, and he's within the bowels of the ship because we are, we are never a lost people. We are saved and sanctified in Jesus and called apart. And if his work is done, it can't be undone. And ultimately, our future is secure. Not if, not maybe, not if I get around to it. We will be glorified, that we will be with and like and for Jesus forever, and none of that stuff can be undone. And that's what I think that the author wants us to know by the end of this, of this book together. So uh, let's read it in verse 27 on the 14th night. Uh, we uh, were still being driven across the Adri- uh, Adriatic Sea. Anybody here get seasick? I used to get uh, Dramamine on the way to Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a 22-hour flight, and your boy was like uh, five for five on the doggy bags uh, every single summer. It was just kind of like my little date with getting sick to my stomach. Um, you know, They're down there. They can't see anything. You can't look at the horizon. It's a very judgment, revelation type of picture. There. You can't even see the stars and the sun. It says it's so dark. How terrifying is this, right? To be in a storm, does the Bible get our suffering? Does the Bible get our fear and the the loathing that goes on for 10 and 20 and 30 years down here? So they're down here for 14 nights, not knowing when the last night would be. And verse 28 says, they took the sounding that found the water at 120 feet. They travel on a little bit longer, and here's a little bit more hope. They drop the sounding again, and it's 90 feet. It's a little bit closer. And so they fear that they're going to be dashed against the rocks, and so they drop drop their anchors there. We're getting a lot of Noah remixes here. That uh, Remember, the, the earth was made in seven days, but Noah was out in the ocean for 40 days, and there's all these records of 10 and 7 and all the receding water. I wonder if Paul, reading in the Old Testament, would be reminded you know, of moments like this, that, that these waves are not forever, that the waves and the trials of life are meant to really give birth to the new creation, that there's birth pangs and suffering and judgment and all sorts of things that are happening, but none of that against the the church of Christ is ever going to be forsaken. It's going to be saved in the middle of these waves. And so that's the hope, really, that Paul is clinging on to with all these other prisoners. So verse 29 says they drop their anchors, and verse 30 says, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors left the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some uh, anchors from the bow. Verse 31 said to the centurion, the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. So I guess just a little bit of a biblical uh, tip for the trade there. If you ever get lost at sea, uh, watch out for people that might steal your lifeboats and don't go on ships with people that are gonna steal the last two seats on the lifeboat uh, while everybody else drowns, I guess. Uh, but he says this really interesting statement. If you pay attention to it, it has some implications. Unless the men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. Like a lot of times I think like salvation, we think of salvation as, is for us. If me and mine get in our little boat and we keep us pretty safe and we teach us the Bible and I do my personal quiet time with God, then my salvation will be secure. But what Jesus seems to be saying, or what the Spirit is saying rather through Luke, is that salvation is not just about my security, it's actually about the security of my neighbors and the nations and the people around me. That in some way, what the Spirit seems to be teaching Paul and the people in this boat is that the safety of the people in the boat is not only dependent on the people in the boat, but also the people that might fall away from the boat or the people that might not ever get on the boat in the first place. Like, I've never thought, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but potentially 
the person that we would witness to, if you think about this, the person that you would witness to that might come to salvation might grow up to be your kid's youth pastor. So the assumption is that, that, that evangelism is professionals and for people that you know, have enough time on their hands to get around with, evangelism is an integral part of salvation is what this seems to be saying. That there is no being in Christ and walking like Christ without acknowledging and witnessing Christ as though witnessing is some type of a hobby for Christians to do. No, witnessing is an integral part because it seems that the salvation of the church is dependent on its witnessing to the nations. And potentially the people that we're witnessing to become the generational culture that we inherit into the future. The people that we witness to could be doctors or lawyers that benefit our life into the future. The people we witness to might become part of the church that would give or serve or lead in ways that our church needs it to be, right? Like this insular idea that I'm the only one that needs to get saved in this situation and I don't care about the lifeboats that are leaving is not biblical. Just a side little bar. And so uh, I'm going to get a little Bruce Lee with you guys here. Uh, so, you know, why, why, why is there so much water, you know, in the Bible? Like this is the very beginning, page one, the watery deep and the, the tohu vavohu and the wild and waste that's described not as a desert, but as water before the earth begins, right? And then, uh, and then Noah, you know, all the Nephilim, um, these demon people, you know, angels having sex with, with, with the people and they have these big giants on the land and God judges them. He could have used locusts or frogs. There's lots of things that God could use. He uses water, floods the whole thing out. Or Moses, you know, like there's a little basket when he's born and he's put into the water and there's a little, you know, bassinet that he travels in and he's safe and then he gets found in the water. There's the water thing. And, and then remember, like at the end of the 10 plagues, the big plague, the big one with the Red Sea, like Israel gets through. But what is it that leads to their salvation? Big old thing of water. Jesus throws the pigs into the water and Peter's walking on the water. There's water kind of everywhere you look and we're ending the book of Acts in water. What's the point of water, right? So this is, I think, what Bruce Lee Bruce Lee says, you need to fight like water, is what Bruce Lee says. It's the extent of my analogy. No, like water is what Bruce Lee is talking about. <clears throat> is, is your friend or your enemy based on the position you have in the water, right? So water is great for washing clothes. And, and, and here's what it's not great for, flooding your house, right? It's not good. Friend when it's washing your clothes, enemy when it's, you know, flooding your house. Water is great when you are just uh, out there on the lake in the pontoon boat, just listening to your favorite country songs, hanging out, dragging the kids. That's great. Isn't that fun? You know, it's not great when you didn't watch the time and you have your little six-year-old on the kayak because you're irresponsible dad, not like me. Uh, no, it was me. That was the point. Uh, with the sun going down and you're terrified because the water's your best friend when you have the lifeboat and the pontoon boat. When you're out there by yourself with the six-year-old, you're terrified because water's not your friend. Have you ever been to the beach in the nighttime? Have you ever seen the most scary kind of upside down, stranger things looking thing in your life with a storm on the beach at night? Golly, I would pay money to go to the beach right now and hang out and go on vacation. My blood pressure goes down. I'm terrified of the beach at night. It's so scary. What's in there? It all depends, you know? It all depends on your position, position that you're taking. You could have two sons, right? And they both have a tough, rough, abusive dad in their house, that they're all walking on eggshells from, right? And depending, depending, uh, depending on what, what exists and what happens in the formative years of those kids between the ears of those two sons, one of those kids, that could absolutely break them. Spending time in, in, in the household of an, of an abusive, cantankerous, explosive person can ruin you, right? And we've seen that before. It could ruin your esteem. It could ruin your sense of worth and what, what you, how you view authority and how you interact with the world. But isn't it strange also that those types of environments can birth the most uh, powerful, um, powerful, focused, and life-giving leaders that we've 
known in our lives and, and in history. That one father could have two sons having two different experiences depends on the position that they take towards that experience. We were in uh, Guatemala uh, the other week, and the, and the preacher was talking about gratitude and thankfulness. And the empty fridge could lead to a place of desperation and poverty, asking God why suffering would exist. But the other side of that he was talking about on that particular Sunday is that the empty fridge can teach you gratitude for any food that ever gets into your fridge into the future, all depending on how you look at it. And so, and so what we're looking at, biblically speaking, when it comes to the waves is waves and rain hit everybody, but it responds differently depending on the boat you're in. That the waves can be your friend or your enemy, that they can sink or save you depending on the position that you're in. And this is what we know about Christ Jesus, is that all things are not necessarily good, but all things work together for the good that are those that are called to Christ Jesus because Jesus isn't just saving us out of waves, he's saving us through the waves. That the waves of life are actually the process of pruning in our life the very same things of COVID and in-laws and recession and all the other things that woulda, coulda, shoulda snapped you in Christ because you have the life jacket of Christ in you actually build you, actually build us into making us more and more like Jesus. And so that I think is what's going on with the analogy of waves is that Waves is not something that we are saved from, but saved through in the name of Jesus. And, and so it's, it's, it's the washing away of our pride. It's the washing away. If you ever, ever notice sometimes when you walk through a, a wavy season, you find out who your real friends are, right? That those situations, those waves not, are not extraneous little things that God has put circumstantially just to prove that you have good endurance, that those waves actually become perp- have purpose in his hands and wash away the things that were of an old season or were detriment to you in the previous season because waves are a part of the salvation process, not an exception to the norm. And so he takes that through in verse 33 and says, just before dawn, uh, Paul urges them to eat some food. Paul says, eat some food. He says, for the last 14 days, you've been in constant suspense. I mean, I love a good cliffhanger. I mean, that's how the Netflix shows work, right? Like you're on episode one, all of a sudden you wake up and you're on episode 30, 40 because you just have to find out what happens to Steve. Like what? And maybe he's going to die this time, you know? Like that's the thing of a cliffhanger. I love him for TV. I hate it for life. I'll be honest. I don't want suspense in my life. I want smooth sailing. I don't want to be out there on the Pacific. I want to be, you know, Joe Cassie. Like I don't want wavy stuff. He says, here's the thing about suspense though. Suspense, suspense can starve you because in life you'll get so caught up and preoccupied with the suspense in your life, wondering what's going to happen next, you'll forget to eat. So remember to eat some food, he says. He says, you haven't eaten anything for the last 14 days, and I urge you to take some food. You need to survive. Now, here's the promise. Not one of you will lose a hair on your head, and there's really nothing you can do about the storm, and there's nothing you can do about this ship, like it's in God's hands, literally speaking here. And so here's what you need to occupy yourself with. It's not necessarily the storm of the ship. You need to occupy yourself with eating. You better eat. Verse 35 says, and after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to it in front of them all. Like he's not just talking about physical bread, he's talking about spiritual bread because he thanks for it and he breaks it. And he broke it and he began to eat and then they were encouraged and ate some food themselves and altogether they were, uh, there were all of us on board eating together. Verse 38, and when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. You need a good friend like this, right? This is the thing. You think you're going to get in the storm and I'm just be cool, calm, and collected, man, because I'm like that. But you don't really know. Wayne will tell you. You don't really know what soldiers are made of until they get some bullets flying at their face, right? That's why everybody has a plan until they get in the face, like Mike Tyson says, okay? So you need this friend. You're going to the job interview and your, your mouth is so dry and you don't know what you're going to say and all the stakes are on the table and you're freaking out and all the things that you thought that you would do so smooth in crunch time, you're not doing anymore because some people are not made for crunch time or all of us are maybe not made for crunch time the first time around. 
And the person comes up to you, and this is the best advice that a friend will give, or maybe you'll give this advice for somebody that's in crunch time. You tell them, hey, man, listen, remember to breathe. Isn't that the best advice? Isn't that the best advice in crunch time for athletes to be in the moment, to take a breath before you take the foul shot, to release other things that you, you know, don't do anything about, to focus on being in the moment. That's the best thing to do because in the moment, you know, you'll, you'll figure out what's next and what's most important and you'll, you'll, you'll respond, you'll react to the training at least that you've had and you'll do what, at least the best that you possibly could do after you've taken the breath. And the breath is not just about, you know, psychological babble. Like the breath is also about like being in the moment and taking small steps. It's about remembering like, you know, what college you went to when you shake the guy's hand. It's remembering to ask a good question at the end of it because they're going to ask you that. Like, it's remembering the small things of, of, of each little step. A long journey takes little tiny steps. So it's reminding people to stay in the moment. And so this is like a ship, right? So the church is like a ship. This is called the SS Sweetbriar, the SS City Lights. And I'm looking at you and you look good. You know, you, you got your clothes on today and you're looking, you know, fine and foxy and uh, you're smiling at me, you know. But I know you're going through, I know, you're, I know under all that, we're all going through the waves. I know that's like, that, what did they say? Like storms are like this. We're either coming into a storm, we're in the storm, or we're about to hit a storm. Like I know that. I mean, that, that's, that, that's honestly over the years of preaching, one of the number one things that I've had to remember in terms of sermon prep is like we're, we're not talking to people that are at the end of the story with the, gratitude, with the, with the uh, leverage of having hindsight. We're in the middle of the thing right now. You and me are in the middle of this thing. And some of you guys are in deep, like, shaky territory. You've never been here before, and you're scared to death about this, about the situation. And some of us are in these little tiny traumatic moments where it's like not really big things are happening in our life, but all the big things that used to happen in our life are reminding us of the trigger points of the little things that are seemingly really big to us right now. Like this is what he's saying. He's preaching this sermon, right? The greatest, maybe one of the greatest evangelists and preachers in the world he gives this big sermon in the middle middle of this boat, in the middle of this like shaky time, this really important time that everybody's life or death, and he has this really fancy sermon, and here's the name of the sermon on the podcast. It's called Remember to Eat. Remember to eat. Don't forget in the middle of the storm that you can't control the storm, and you can't control the ship, and so at least the thing that you can do, you should control, but even more than that, this is what God commanded. This is all that God commanded us to do. When we have enemies around us, remember that there's a table in front of you to eat, and don't forget to eat. That the victory of the Lord is not really won with swords and battles and strategies. It's, it's done by eating and breaking bread in, in the presence of God. So in a way, what, what Paul is saying, if there's three-part you know, alliteration, you know, remember to eat the bread. In one way, I think he would tell us, in your time right now, your struggle, like, don't take it too seriously. Like, you got to remember to laugh. Like, you've got situations in your, in your life right now and when you get beyond the situation, what you would tell yourself into the past is like pay attention to your kids. You can't change anything about what your boss is doing. You can't change where you're going to end up. But here's what you can, can change. You can change your attitude in the middle of it. Remember to get your spouse aside and laugh with them. Like laughter in the, in the Proverbs, let alone the Ben Franklin book type of thing, laughter is medicine. And we are simple creatures. We're not complicated. And what you need almost more than anything in this time, if you're in a stressful situation, is to remember to eat, remember to laugh. I remember this, uh, this uh, meme I ran across uh, the other day. It was a picture of Jesus in, in the Last Supper, and above it, it said, you know, one of the most underrated miracles that Jesus ever did is that he was a middle-aged man with 12 friends. You know? We are so fixated on the sail and the wave and the next strategy of the thing that we did last time, and it's going to work this time, that it's, that it's, that it's not only possible, it's it's incredibly common for people to make their way through 10 and 20 years of life going through their storms and missing probably the most important part of storms, 
which is to find the community that you need to get through that storm. Isn't that the reason for the season that you're in? Is that the people that you walk with that are not supposed to be in your life are going to get scared by that storm and leave you, and they need to leave you because that's what Jesus would have, right? But at the same time, this is the moment. If you're going through a storm, maybe the moment's not actually about the storm. It's about the table that you're supposed to gather around in the middle of the storm because you and me might find lifetime friends in our struggle. And that's, and, and that's the distance between rising and falling in the middle of a struggle is whether or not we struggle alone or together. And probably one of the best benefits of walking through a storm is the people we find as we walk through it together. Bonding and friendship and relationship in ways that no amount of of, of any other season could potentially create for us. Did you know I also read a statistic this week that said that if you were to read the Bible four times a week, I read this week, if you, not, not just three, like literally, I guess four was the magic number, that anxiety of people that read the Bible up to four times a week, the statistically proven anxiety will go down by 60% if you read the Bible, if you remember to eat his word. It is the most complicated, I'm in the middle of Leviticus while my life is falling apart. What in the world does this have to do with well, you're a human being, and plants need sun, and, 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 and Christians need to eat the Scripture. And this is our season where we're going to grow. And you know, you have people out there that are just steely and wise with God. You know how they got there? They read the Bible in the middle of their storm. And they, didn't, they weren't distracted with the ADHD of life of getting distracted by all these other things. They said, actually, God's made it very simple. He's just commanded me to eat. That's all that I'm expected to do, to eat the Scripture, to eat with, 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 with prayer. I mean, we were... Um, uh, Talking the other day with, with Kyra in my head, I mean, you just think about the altitude and the attitude of your head, fear and, and the panic and all the types of things that goes on in the human heart and the human head on a day-to-day basis and how fickle that is. I mean, from one minute to the next, you know, you might just be in the pit of something and then the right Bonnie Raitt song came on the radio and you're whole, I mean, that's how stupid we are, right? I mean, prayer, like we prayed for two minutes and it was like I moved from Georgia to Texas. Like it was like my attitude was completely flipped over only because of prayer. This is the simple sermon that he would have. If he had one thing to say to SS City Lights this morning of you going through your storm, just don't forget to eat. Like remember to eat. Okay, and so, uh, oh no, that's my last week's sermon. Hang on. We're moving over to the phone now. See how good my eyesight is anymore. So verse 39 says, you know, when daylight came, they didn't recognize the land. Uh, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So it's a very, um, it's a very crash landing type of an ending here in the end of uh, the book of Acts. There is one more chapter to kind of roll, roll the credits. But verse 40 says, Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea at the same time, untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind uh, and made for the beach. Verse 41 says, But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground, and the bow uh, stuck fast and wouldn't move, and the stern was broken to pieces uh, by the pounding surf. Uh, me and Kyra were very simplistic people. Up until about 2007, we had one cell phone, one Honda Pilot, one email address, okwong at gmail.com. We were living good. I think I was happier back then. Maybe we just need to go back to that. One little uh, Nokia phone, you know, with the snake game on it. Um, uh, so, so at church, you know, they, they give you a bunch of free stuff, but it's half broken is that's, that's the trick about getting free stuff at church. And, uh, somebody gave me the old, like 1982, trying to be a DeLorean, um, Honda Accord, uh, that didn't have uh, windshield wipers that worked and, and, uh, the oil was, was pretty leaky. So I carried two 
jugs in my trunk everywhere I went. I had one drug, which was the jug, which was the anti-frost that you would pour on the windshield. It'd get, you know, cold, and I'd get out the red light like Ace Ventura and just pour, like, anti-freeze on the top of my windshield and put it back. And then the oil, you know, you didn't have to get an oil change because it just went in and just went out. And that was, <clears throat> that was the change. So I just, like, you know, sometimes it would be vegetable oil, whatever I could get my hands on. And I couldn't make it any worse, you know. And, uh, and I just remember, like, one day that thing was working, and the next day it just, it just cut off, and it was like, I'm done, good night, and then it was done, you know, it's just the end of it, like, it just petered out, and I kind of ran that, that, that boat, or that, sh- that car, uh, to, the end of, to the end of its existence on the earth. And, uh, and, so, and so here we are, right, the ship, it's like, the picture that's painted here is the ship, like, couldn't have gone another 30 feet, like, the ship had just enough stability and they had to tie the ropes that were supposed to be on the top of this boat, like underneath the boat, to like hold it together. The, ho- the ship's going around for 14 days, you know, seven days plus seven days. And it just kind of lands up on this beach in Malta. And it pulls up and it just like, just, you know, kind of just all, all falls apart. And so what's the point of that? Like, why, why are we ending here in this anticlimactic scene with the ship kind of like coasting up on the thing with all falling apart? And, and, and well, first of all, I think because it relates to us, like I feel like my life is barely making. I'm always like sliding in five minutes late to the program, un- uh, tired and underprepared, and I feel like that's probably pretty resonant to, to the experience that we have on a day-to-day basis. But also this, that the boat falls apart because it's providing for us the, 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 the behind-the-curtain look and understanding that really, if you're following this boat on the 14 days and really following this church for the last 26 chapters of this book, this, this, this boat, uh, the, the people that are in this boat are not actually being saved by the boat, right? They're, they're being saved by Jesus, this is what's happening is this boat coasts up onto the thing and falls apart to show the boat wasn't actually being held together by wood and seams and, and, and great craftsmanship. The boat was being held together by Jesus. And then ultimately, ultimately, the people and the passengers and all the things that were on the boat were saved not by the boat but by Jesus. And so here you have Paul, right? If Paul's your son, you feel great about him. Like, man, like what a leader. Like, look at Paul. He's out here with the Navy SEALs and they're out going to the bathroom in their pants, right? And it's 14 days and everyone's throwing up. And Paul's like, don't forget to eat. And then they all get saved. Like, it's incredible. Like, Paul is just the man. And, 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 so, and so you get this picture of, of, of like, you know, like, what, what is it that makes, you know, a great leader? What does it make, what, what is it that makes a person that is a disciple that makes disciples? It's like, it's this person, like, where their, their ego and their, their anxiety and their, their control, like through the waves of life, have been washed off their life. It's this person that can be in the moment because they know that if they are walking in the things that God has put in front of them to do and say, that God is taking care of everything else. It's this moment of, of this guy, Paul, that like if he's been in and out of prison, like he's never been in a wave before, but gosh, you've been in a Roman prison and you've been flogged for no reason and you followed Christ and been spat on and you go back into Jerusalem and preach like you haven't been in a boat before, but you've been in that moment your entire life. Like, that's the reason why Paul, he's not just a crunch time player. Like, he's been here his whole life. His life has been crunch time. And he's finding himself in this, in this situation. And so I think what the Bible is doing is it's not just telling us what salvation is. It's showing us. This is the image of, of, of salvation. From justification to sanctification to glorification. It's all fancy words. You know what salvation is? It's not boats. It's not it's not the great churches that you go to. It's not the boxes you check. It's not the rhythms that you find along the way. It's not the book that you read about fasting or Sabbath or the new thing that you do. It's not about any of those. You know what it is? It's about Jesus. And so salvation is to live in, with, like, and for Jesus. 
Glorification is such a fuzzy word. Like, what does that mean? We go up with harps and then they give us our parking spot in heaven and a big mansion. You know what I think glorification means in biblical terms? It means look at what Paul is doing in the middle. That's the glory of Jesus. Reflecting Jesus in the middle of storms is the glory of Jesus. The full salvation package is put on display. This is what is promised to us this side of heaven in Christ Jesus is not a life without waves. It's a life of faith within the waves in Jesus. It's knowing that I've been in lots of shaky boats before and I've been in front of lots of things before and I've seen God come in and out of lots of storms before, but this is why I know it's not boats that save people. It's not bread that saves people. It's not waves that save people. It's Jesus that saves me. And so I think that is the image that we have in front of us of the boat in the waves, like these waves that we are in, the circumstances. The waves that we're in are here um, to save us. They're here to save us. That's the trick, is that the, 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 the fallen world and the flesh and, and the devil, like, the reason why they're terrifying is because they take people out and people sink in waves. But the point of this whole thing is that we are not living in the waves. We're ultimately living in Christ. And so those things, they don't come to, to sink us. They actually come to save us. And these, these moments in our life, the reason that you and I are in this moment is to test the security and salvation that we have in Jesus to find out that all we have is him. I remember uh, uh, I was being an idiot in college, and uh, we went on this uh, little trip, and um, it was a men's night, and it was 11. And girls, when they get together, um, they get together, they get smarter. And we, uh, we don't get smarter. Like, when we get together, we aim and, and grab the dumber idea. Like, oh, that's even dumber. Let's, you know, let's do that. And so... Um, so we had read uh, Wild at Heart. This is a book from the 90s. And we thought, you know it would be great um, in the dark ocean, not the sunny ocean, uh, is we should all paint our faces blue and um, hit potatoes into the ocean with wiffle ball bats. And I was like, that's a great idea. Like my guy back there was like, I'm in. That's dumber. I mean, you're not going to get any dumber than that. You know, let's do it. So... We go down there, and, uh, and you're not scared of that dark ocean, are you? No, I love it. I, I like it when the sun's not out. Matter of fact, I prefer it. I'd rather have a dark ocean than sin in the, swim in the, uh, in the ocean. Dude, um, and then, you know, what is, I mean, what's even, that's not dumb enough. I mean, if we're hitting potatoes in the ocean, I mean, what's even cooler than that is I might as well go swim in there in my uh, American, Eagle, American Eagle boxer shorts. And so I go out there. And I get into this moment, and guys, pay attention to your lifeguard because they're telling you stuff that matters. I'm swimming towards the shore, but every time I swim closer to the shore, I find myself further away from it. You guys ever been in a situation? That's called a riptide. <laughs> that little, like, drawing that they have that you're like, that's for people that can't swim. No, it's for everybody. Uh, <laughs> and you will find that out pretty quickly. And so I'm literally swimming, and, and, and I'm saying goodbye to my whole life. I'm like, there it is, in the dark. And... and uh, and, and basically, men, you know, at least guys like me, you know, you know how serious it is because they're basically not going to cry for help until they're almost dead. So basically, the fact that I was calling for help proves you that I was almost dead. And so I was swimming this way, and the waves were taken this way, and all I had was the, the pier at the very end, and I grabbed hold of all those barnacles and all those seashells and just like hanged on for dear life. And I'm telling you, it was crazy. Like, water is crazy. You don't realize how crazy it is and scary it is until, you know, the lifeguard goes home. And the waves were pushing and literally pushing so hard that like every time I had to like swim back and go get it. 
and my friend John DeMott was, was going was gonna to go help me, and I was able to swim from one pillar to the next pillar, and every time I was like almost in my head and going all this stuff, and I just rolled up on the beach, you know, just exhausted. And I think that's the picture of salvation. It's a picture of a person who's the waves of their life has just washed up on them so much. Like, I know that that, that, that person, that, that mentor in your life, or that, that person that has represented Christ to you, it hurts your heart so bad because in some way they didn't fully represent Christ in the way that you hoped or expected or wanted. But the wave of that life is not, it would have crushed you. And it has shipwrecked people's face. It's like 30% of people never came back to church after COVID. But the things that God is using to wash the world and even judge the world in some cases, he's using those same waves to save his Christians. And so these are what these lives, if we don't have these waves, we don't cling to Christ. It's just humanity. It's just the way that it works. These are not his plan B. It's his plan A. And this is the picture we have of what salvation is. Justification, sanctification, glorification. It's to look like Christ, is to image, is to witness him, to look at him in a way that all that is reflected from me is him. And we don't get that without the waves. And so that's what salvation is. It's not just a cute thing in Sunday school that we put on the board and say yes to and check the box so we know where we're going after life. Salvation is happening right now. You are working out your salvation. You are living, you and I are living out the salvation in the middle of this boat. And it is rocky and scary. And if you thought it was something else, you listened to the wrong warning. He told you there was going to be great trouble because in this world is great trouble. But the trouble is not your enemy. The trouble is actually used in the hands of Christ to shape you and mold you, to be your friend, and to save you because you're being saved. That's the reason for our season is salvation. It's not fixing things, but it's faith in salvation. That we would come to the table, they would stare at his eyes, that we'd remember to eat, and that we would be saved, and that, we, that his glory would shine through us um, as the water covers the seas. And so I have uh, our intentional question just to close up today about your uh, future and your past and your present. And I'll have the band to come up uh, forward as well. But these are the questions that I have for us to consider. The first one is this. If you know that your future is already safe in Jesus, if Jesus only makes safe boats, you treat waves differently. If you already know that your circumstance is not going to determine your future, rather your future is going to determine your circumstance, you have to treat waves differently. You, will treat, you and I will treat our neighbors differently, we'll treat challenges differently, we'll treat risk differently, whether or not we go back and help other people or save ourselves, we will treat all of those things differently based on, and so the question that we have to ask ourselves deep in our heart of hearts today is, do you know you're saved? Are you saved? Because if you are justified, you will be glorified, and you have no fear in any of these waves because God conquers every wave, and he doesn't put you in unsafe, unsafe ships, and so you can know that you can focus on the step in front of you if you know that you will be saved. Secondly, in the present tense, is Jesus saving you? Is he saving you? This is what the, 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 the hymn says, that the, the process of sanctification is not just behavior management, is that the things of earth grow strangely dim. The things of earth grow strangely dim. That as we go through, we are continually finding that the things that we pine after and love and long for and think our salvation lives in, this day has come to us for no other purpose than to dim that idol. That is the entire purpose of us being awake in this place today, is to find that things are not as important as Jesus. And that can do the hard way or the easy way. So if he's saving you, then the command that is in Scripture is true and it's for you. The command of, of, of one anothering, the forgiveness command, the confession command, the serving command, like those commands are here. We can go through it the hard way or the easy way, right? We can go kicking and screaming or we can hold on to Christ in the middle of that wave. But the design of today is to see you saved, is to work out the salvation. And lastly, has he saved you? And if he has saved you, like if you are justified in Christ, then what is true of Christ is true of you. And you are being treated like, like Christ. Um, because of what, what Jesus has done to you. And so 
you, can, you have the ability to breathe, you have the ability to eat, and you have your ability to fix your eyes on Jesus. And that's really the difference. There's no exit. There's no amnesty from being in the storm. We're all going to be in this together. We're all going to be in the storm. The question is, whose boat will you live in in the storm? Jesus makes great boats. They're safe boats. They're unleaky boats. They're full of the Spirit, and they're getting to where they're going to be. And that's our choice. That's our choice. We are in Christ. But will our decisions be in Christ? Will our attitude be in Christ? Will our choices be in Christ? Will our ethics be in Christ? That's, that's the decision. That's the decision of how we're going to walk in and through the storm together. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.